You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Well, folks, uh, a couple of months ago, I was having a lovely chat with Rich Stearns, who in, in one of those surreal moments I had studied in seminary and then had the incredible pr- uh, pleasure of getting to meet uh, here on the podcast. And in passing, we, we wrapped up our interview and then Rich said, look, have you talked to Tim Costello? And I had not. And I'm always, as you guys know, I'm always on the hunt for more Aussies to chat with because... As I've been saying on this show for several years now, the world needs more Aussies. We're like salt. We we make everything a little better. And we're very humble about it, Tim. I've got to say, we're, we're unpretentious about our amazing, you know, contribution to the world. It's, it's very hard to be uh, humble when you're as great as we are, Steve. I, I appreciate that you said it. It saved me <laughs> having to say it. Uh, Tim, among many other things, served as the CEO of World Vision Australia for 13 years or so. And uh, before that, he was an attorney. And somewhere in between there, he was a Baptist minister. Uh, Tim currently leads the the MICA project. And he's also actually um, a senior fellow at the Center for Public Christianity, which I'm sure a lot of my American audience uh, doesn't know anything about. But for us Aussies, is one of the great think tanks and and um, group of spokespeople for Christian faith. Because in Australia, if you don't know how to speak about Christianity reasonably, it's over. And so I've watched Tim give interviews on morning TV shows. He knows how to represent faith. In fact, I think if you ever see him represent faith here in America, you'd, you'd wish he would come over and do it for us because so many people who represent Christianity on TV here are the very ones we don't want representing Christianity. So, Tim, with that uh, rather illustrious introduction, welcome to the MLA podcast. An absolute delight. And I I want you speaking at my funeral. That sounded beautiful. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, let's begin. You know, you've you've, uh, released a memoir a couple of years ago, and I was intrigued by the fact that you came from a family, a well-means middle-upper-class family, but you made the intentional move to give your life to the margins and poverty I'd like to start there. What? Tell me about that move. What made you make that move? Yeah, so I uh, certainly had all the middle-class aspirations and achieved them. I was a lawyer. My brother was a lawyer. My brother ended up the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Um, so uh, you're right. We had uh, a very blessed platform and beginning. Uh, look, the mistake I made was I read the Bible and uh, I read the 8th century prophets And I then realized that Jesus and the Apostle Paul stood in the slipstream of those 8th century prophets and their passion for justice, Mm. their cry for justice, for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the stranger being, I guess, the refugee in modern language terms. And it just grabbed me. And I realized that uh, this life as a Christian wasn't the only life. I had to squeeze in every advancement, career placement, higher remuneration, better house furniture in my home, uh, that I had another life. And uh, I believed in the resurrection. And uh, that literally allowed me to free up to say I can serve, I can sacrifice, I can give. I don't have to squeeze everything into this life. Uh, And... uh, 
reading the Bible, I think, is the answer to, to your question of what motivated me. Mm. And then do you feel like you were raised with those 8th century prophet stories uh, in the church or was it another venue where you first discovered them? You know, in the church, I more it was an evangelical Baptist church. I became a Baptist minister, but it was more the um, uh, evangelism and the Great Commission that I was raised on. So it was in my late teenage years that... Uh, uh, I started reading, particularly uh, Isaiah and Amos and Micah. Uh, now, we believe they were part of Scripture, but they just weren't preached a lot. So it was uh, yeah. my own journey into them and saying, how does this fit with Jesus? And uh, how do I understand him as the Messiah, my Messiah? Uh, and so it was a personal journey uh, in, for, for myself and then later picked up in theological study that I did. Yeah. And then, Tim, what about the first time you encountered, like, systemic poverty for yourself? What was that like, or, or how old were you then? Yeah, the first uh, encounter was in my early 20s. I went to the Philippines, and I was in a slum, and uh, I was talking to a mother who had lost a child. And uh, her story was she had a choice to actually pay what would have been a couple of weeks' money for medicines that might save her child's life, but then wouldn't have money to feed the other children. And she decided to take the risk um, and not buy the medicines, and her child died. And I remember just tears running down my face, uh, thinking, I'll be a parent. I fancy as a parent being faced with that choice. And that was the experience, really connecting with what I'd been reading from... Uh, the 8th century prophets to Jesus and his Jesus's signature message that the gospel is good news for the poor, certainly poor in spirit, but this woman who was materially poor and had to face that terrible choice. Yeah, and it's interesting, even when you say poor in spirit, you know, that's Matthew, but Luke, Luke takes that away, right? When Jesus is talking about who's blessed, Luke just lays it out that Jesus said, blessed are the poor, full stop. I, I assume you've done some digging around in some of the liberation theologians, the the South American guys. What's your take on that? So I, I think they uh, recovered a great truth. Uh, their truth was the pref God's preferential option for the poor, that yeah. uh, Jesus yeah. said, uh, Luke 4, first sermon, should listen to the first sermon, it's good news for the poor. <laughs> Jesus' last sermon, the last great teaching before his uh, arrest, trial, execution, Matthew 25, uh, yep, that was me who was hungry. And that person in prison, yep, that was me too. And that person who's naked, well, that was me. Uh, so uh, the bookends of Jesus' teaching, I think liberation theology picked up. Look, I didn't buy the whole Structure. I don't believe the poor are only poor because the rich are rich. And I think uh, liberation theology sometimes gave political structural interpretations that were a bit too simplistic, but absolutely resonated with their rediscovery of God's love for the poor. Yeah. I, I uh, in my own journey, I did not, I was not raised in the church, so I didn't start going to church till I was a teenager. And it wasn't until Bible college I had a very similar experience to you where the Old Testament professor opened up the 8th century prophets. And I, I remember feeling robbed, like that there was all this life in Scripture that we just had not been 
given in the local church. And that's not always the case. There are some local churches that integrate it well. But it was in seminary that I was exposed to liberation theology. I had the same reaction you have. But my journey took me right back home to Aboriginal theology. Mm. Um, Dr. Anne Patel Gray. Yes, who's a friend of mine, a wonderful Indigenous leader. Is she really? Oh, well, I mean, I know we're recording here. I would greatly appreciate an introduction. I would love to interview her sometime. We we can do that, Steve. Oh, that would be a dream because that... Anything for a fellow Aussie. (laughs) Well, she blew my world away. The way she talked about faith and and the things she pulled out of Scripture that I'd never seen as a a white person of privilege, it was was remarkable. I, I have a belief that you don't really understand your Christian faith till you live outside your culture. Uh, I did my theological study in Switzerland and uh, I was a a non-drinking, non-smoking, non-dancing Baptist because that was what Christians were in Australia and that's a good thing. I discovered um, Italian Baptists who smoked and yet they loved (laughs) Jesus and uh, German Baptists who drank and they loved Jesus and, of course, the Spanish all danced and, uh, and I had to start distinguishing between my understanding of culture and Bible and uh, push back to the roots of my faith. I'm sure Anne Patel Gray helped you with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the old adage that the reason the Baptists don't practice sex before marriage is it might lead to dancing. (laughs) Yep. I've used that one too. Um, Tim, talk to us about World Vision. Un- under your tenure, uh, the the scope of World Vision Australia exploded. It, it really grew tremendously. What was the decision that made you take that role to, to lead World Vision? Yeah, I was headhunted. I was a Baptist minister at that point. I'd been a lawyer before. I'd been a mayor of a city, the city of St Kilda. So I'd done a few things before. So I think World Vision thought maybe I might have the... Uh, the experience. Uh, look, it was a giant step up for me organisationally. Uh, $400 million budget, 600 staff. And uh, I say in my memoir, after the second day at work, my wife said, come on, wake up, you've got to go off to your new job. And I pulled the doona over and I said, you go. I don't want to be a CEO. I was so overwhelmed by the organisational side. Uh, Look, in terms of uh, its growth, uh, we just said Australians, even if they're secular, uh, want a good story to tell about themselves. When they look in the mirror, they want to say, I was generous. I gave my kids uh, an experience of sponsoring a child and knowing that they are blessed and that they should be grateful. And therefore, the explosion wasn't simply World Vision uh, marketing only to Christians, uh, but right across the nation. Now, that had been happening before me, but because I already had a public profile in Australia uh, for campaigns I was running on gambling and uh, a whole lot of other things, that uh, really helped Australians say, yep, we are blessed. And the most wonderful gift you can give to your children in terms of resilience is gratitude that they are blessed that they can give that they can see a child who doesn't have what they have and they can say i can do something about that little bit of my pocket money uh so some of those messages helped with the with the growth yeah Tim, how old were you when you took the role at World Vision Australia? I was 49 by then, so I'd had a long career as lawyer, pastor, mayor, 
I'd done quite a few things beforehand. Yeah. I'm going to try something and feel free to pass or play on it. But my, my theory about us Aussies is it's true on the one hand that we're laid back, right? The whole she'll be right. Like we, it's, mm-hmm. we don't tend to sweat. We tend to be able to walk into a situation and figure it out. I, I think what's also true is how hard we work at, at keeping that image alive. And underneath mm-hmm. the surface of that, there is a, a an afraid or a, a nervous person. You kind of hinted at that w- with your wife on day two. So you were at World Vision, if I remember right, 13 years. How long do you think it took you to get used to being the leader of it? Oh, look, it took me um, at least two years. Um, I was really out of my depth organisationally. Look, uh, the role of a CEO is to be chief salesman. I was good at that. I had a public persona doing media. Uh, I'd been doing that for years. Um, And uh, thankfully, the Australian secular public knew me and liked me, even though I have a reverend in front of my name, which is a bit unusual. It is unusual, yes. Uh, Secondly, uh, the CEO is the morale booster for staff keeping the vision alive and uh, caring for them, nourishing them, and I think I was really good at that. The third part of it being the uh, organisational leader and uh, uh, being able to conquer the details. I was always big picture and terrified of the, the details. And every board meeting, which is two volumes of uh, board papers, was like an exam. And I was absolutely out of my depth because the CEO, I was meant to be across compliance and risk and all the financial minutiae. And it caused profound anxiety in me, that part of it, uh, until I really accepted I'm a leader, I'm not a manager. I've appointed good people who can do that micro detail and trust them. And I think the real breakthrough for me overcoming anxiety was saying, I don't have to fool the board. <laughs> they know this. They appointed me. I don't have to pretend. I can say, you've got me. I don't know. Throw to one of my uh, direct reports. Uh, level with them when I was out of my depth, um, which is a bit um, maybe unusual for a CEO. A CEO wants to impress their board that they're on top of all the material. I had to get to their point of admitting I tried my best but I was never quite, quite ever going to be on top of all of this. And then the anxiety actually sub, subsided in me and I could be who I was and, and warts and all, failures and all. Yeah. Would you be willing to tell us about an earlier mistake you made and what that was like for you? Oh, look, earlier I was trying to do the bluffing. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I know uh, that's a good question while my head is spinning and saying I've got no answer to that question. How long <laughs> can I spin this, <laughs> this uh, fraud? Uh, I had a few of those meltdowns earlier and... I think, I think it goes back to even my childhood. Um, uh, two wonderful parents, both teachers, uh, but my mother particularly uh, raised us on who can answer this question? Who's the cleverest child? And uh, my brother was always smarter. When they handed out brains, uh, I was at the back of the queue, I think, and my brother was number one. And I think I internalised shame that I didn't know an answer and I wasn't the cleverest and uh, that voice, uh, my mother's voice, I don't think she meant to do that, but it it uh, intensified pressure in me and in, in the job at World Vision 
uh, until I could really say, I don't know. And I probably never will be quite across, as you expect a typical CEO, all this detail, uh, was, was many, many moments of failure there. Yeah. I, I think one of the other distinctives of a world relief organization like World Vision is the CEOs get right in the midst of of the trip. Like you've been to many countries, you've gotten down into people's homes, you've played with kids. Is that something that came naturally to you? Was that something you enjoyed? What was that like? Yeah, no, that part of it was uh, in my, my strong suit and uh, I loved being in the places where there was trauma and disaster. It sounds weird to say I loved it, but uh, I never felt more alive than when I was with the rawest, most vulnerable moments. Uh, And part of that is the sense that World Vision can give you a chance and some hope and I can do something. And this suffering, a natural disaster or a human disaster of war, Uh, isn't the end of the story. You are seen, you are known, you are loved. I know your name. God knows your name. That that part of it of play and being there um, was uh, very, very fulfilling in terms of uh, my my faith. Uh, Look, it had downsides. I often came back and uh, would dissolve in tears on TV, national TV conference, because I felt guilt. That that woman in Darfur, Sudan, who I talked to who'd been raped, that I could get on a plane and leave. And I was her best hope to raise funds to treat, get her out of a refugee camp and I might fail. And I hadn't been eloquent enough or I hadn't raised enough dollars. I, and part of that, I think, is trauma. I um, would find myself in non-World Vision settings, a happy occasion, maybe giving a speech. And out of nowhere... I'd see the face of that woman in Darfur. Without warning, I'd be in tears and people would look and say, that's odd, why is he crying? And I realised I'd built and needed to build walls around my emotions. The trouble is the walls are never watertight. The walls leak and the hemorrhaging emotions would overcome me. So... Whilst I felt most alive, I also recognise there was a cost and I, I continue to, to pay it in some ways. Yeah, I think, I think that's the challenge, isn't it, of, of the massive gap of resource between Western countries and country, developing countries. It, it's not your fault you were born where you were born and it's not that lady's fault but it produces a massive disparity in opportunity in life. Um, you know, as you know, Tim, a lot of what we do on this show is we talk about chronic anxiety, the, the leadership pressure that everyone faces. And some of our listeners do work in acute and trauma anxiety situations. We have people who work in sex slavery and people who work in grinding poverty scenarios. What, what are just a couple of your best practices to, to keep your heart open to being broken. You know, obviously Bob Pierce famously talked about that. At the same time, be able to live your life in Australia, which is an incredible place to live. What, what are a couple of best practices that you used when you would come home or even now? Obviously, these experiences even now to you are fairly close to the surface. 
Yes, I, I was on the path potentially to burnout because I would see what I'd see in the field. I'd be on a plane coming back and it might stop in Bali because that would be the way home from an earthquake in Thailand or uh, Indonesia. I went to many. And Australians on the uh, trip home would be moaning about Australia and whinging about something and I felt great anger, Steve. I... I remember overhearing conversations and wanting to grab people and shake them and say, do you know how blessed we are? Uh, I might be giving a talk in Australia and people would be um, hearing about what I'd seen and then you knew the glazed I'd look over their eyes meant they'd switched off and they were wondering who was playing in the football tonight. And I would feel this resentment. But you had... You are blessed and this is raw and we can help and we can make a difference. So part of the best practice was really in spiritual counselling, accepting that, one, I'm not the Messiah. Two, I can't judge people who haven't seen what I've seen smelt. The bodies I saw in mass graves in the tsunami, uh, seen the uh, look of sheer hope in people's faces that you might you might help them and feel the guilt I felt or pressure that I now have that responsibility. I can't judge others that they hadn't been there. And therefore I needed to say, I've got to let go. I've got to give this back to God. Uh, I can't do more than what I can do. And reconcile the fact that with my family and living in Australia I have a very blessed life and that's okay with God. Uh, He's not asking me to somehow sacrifice that and burn myself out with guilt because of it. So it was really the spiritual practices of meditation, a spiritual counsellor that really helped me, Steve. Yeah, that's great. And then uh, not that long ago, you stepped down and you're now leading MICA Australia. Uh, Tell us a bit about what you're doing now. Well, MICA Australia is all the faith-based agencies, Christian agencies. uh, So it's the World Visions and Salvation Army and Baptist Anglicans, etc. Its main idea is Christians disproportionately privately give to international aid. So... Uh, Even though Christians are less than 10% uh, church-attending Christians of the population, they give over 50% in private giving to the world's poor. So we literally are the salt. (laughs) Humble, (laughs) invisible, uh, bringing out other flavours of the nation, uh, suppressing bitter flavours. Salt is meant to dissolve and not be noticed. (laughs) Um, And then to say, shine a light. Shine a light, Micah, Australia, on the Australian government's aid program, why it's at its lowest level ever, and bring salt and light together and say to the government, you know, Christians are giving, therefore they've earned the right to say, the government should match that generosity. The particular part of that has been a campaign Micah has been running called End COVID for All, saying it's not over for any of us until it's over for all of us. The Delta variant that's causing lockdown here in Australia and around the world started in India. And with Asia and Africa so under-vaccinated, there'll be more variants, mutant variants that assail us. So it's in our interest to actually be generous and vaccinate the world's poor. But... 
We say as Christians in the spirit of Micah, Micah 6, 8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. We say to our government, and it's right, these people in Africa and Asia carry the image of God. And if anyone who's an image bearer suffers from not being vaccinated, not having enough food to feed their kids, not having clean water, it cripples the image of God. That's sinful. And part of salvation is restoring the crippled image of God. That includes not just the good news that God loves you, Jesus died for you, but a vaccine, clean water, enough calories, hope and education, kids out of slavery. So Micah exists to bring salt and shine a light, which is radical and disruptive on the Australian government's uh, generosity or lack of it. And we've seen, thankfully, a billion dollars extra from the Australian government for uh, uh, our neighbours and vaccinations. That's what Micah tries to do. It's been fascinating to watch you, Tim, on some um, Aussie morning TV shows and some interviews because you, you, you talked about early in your faith how you stumbled across the 8th century prophets. I, I would imagine people who know you would describe you as a prophet. You certainly bring a prophetic voice to the Aussie public and to the government. It's fascinating to me to look at your own path. You've, you've been a politician. You, you have been an attorney. You know how to make a case. You've, you have the credibility to speak about poverty and watching you speak very boldly in, in this, the tone you're using with me now, this matter-of-fact, courteous but clear, right? That's quite a skill you have. When, when did you first figure out that you were good at that? Um, I was blessed that with two teacher parents, um, they were confident, they were extroverts, they taught my brother and sister and I from an early age to speak. And um, church is a remarkable training ground. So uh, my brother, who would dominate in Parliament what was called question time, uh, American audiences have to think of the British Parliament or yeah. the Australian as different yeah. to Congress. Um, my brother would dominate it. People would say, where did he get that skill? And I'd say Sunday school, youth group. Uh, the combination of parents who were teachers and extroverts They'll build houses and live in them. No longer shall they build houses and others live in them because it's not a council level. Homelessness was the issue. And someone said to me, well, secularists from Kilda raised an eyebrow. They've got a, a reverend as a mayor quoting scripture. That's never happened in St Kilda's history. But it was accepted. I think tone there is everything. If it's not the tone of we have the truth and you must shut up and listen to us and then you'll understand the truth, if that's the sort of tone you come across with, but we have great grace.
I think so too. I think it's one of the great distinctives between the Aussie Christian spokespeople and, and not all of the American ones. You can't make such a big statement, but so many of the people who claim to speak for God in American media are wielding a bigger stick than I think God is calling them to wield. And it's interesting, people like yourself, and I also think of John Dixon, I even think of John Smith back in the old days. These are people who have earned the right to speak by their service and and, and bring to the secular listening ear. I don't know, it's the way you put it that people can't ignore it, but it's it's not aggressive. That, that's quite a skill. As I know in this country where we're desperate for it. And um, when I was watching some of your press conferences, it reminded me of, uh, I was like, that's what it is. That's, what's, that's what Christian faith is at its best in Australia is, is what you're representing there. I think uh, one of the advantages of being such a secular nation is as Christians, we've never had probably the Christendom idea that yeah. we run the show, we wrote the script, we'll tell you what to do. We've always known <laughs> that we're a minority voice. And, you know, when you think about the first 300 years when the gospel turned the world upside down, I don't know if the, the preaching was better then and the evangelism was better. I think it was the fact that Christians cared for the pagan poor, education, health in the pandemics, prepared to stay and care for those dying when they could escape because they believed in the resurrection and they believed the pagans carried the image of God. And I think the preaching then matched this novel ethic of loving and service. And I think that's where, you know, the tone becomes really important. Tim, we've been chatting about a number of things and uh, you've obviously uh, gone through a number of experiences yourself, including, if I may, receiving, uh, becoming an officer in the Order of Australia. Um, However, I don't feel that any of that prepared you adequately for the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Uh, It has brought a lesser man to his knees. Let's see. Let's see how we do. So, question number one. Uh, one, of, one of the theories of family systems theory is we're all carrying our family of origin on our shoulders. We've all been dealt a hand. And uh, it, what, what I like about it has no interest in blame. It's not interested in blaming dad. or It's just trying to help you get clarity on what have you inherited. So what would be a trait, a family trait that you think is a real asset to you as a leader? And which one might be a liability? Well, I realised when I was about 12 that my family was different when a friend came to our Sunday lunch after church and uh, Sunday lunches always went for two hours with questions and debate about we start with the sermon, we'd move on to the nation, move on to the world. And my friend said, your family's so weird. And I said, what? He said, we eat our dinner and we turn on TV or go and play outside your family just keeps debating and discussing. And I think that is the great uh, legacy that taught uh, us as kids to think on our feet, to be engaged, to say the faith actually does engage real life and the world. That trait, I think, has been an extraordinarily 
wonderful heritage. And then how about a liability? Well, the liability I referred to earlier, I think that sense of uh, who's the cleverest, who can answer this, that that was also part of the debates, gave me a sense of uh, panic at times that I didn't know an answer and shame. And uh, I I really had had to struggle with that later in life. Yeah. Okay, so this next question, it might be pretty tightly related to that, but I, you know, I think we all have an inner critic. You've kind of alluded to yours. I think the challenge of the gospel is to believe what God thinks about us more than what we think about ourselves. What would it be for you if you, if you were filling in the blank? What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What, what might the blank be for yourself? Are oh, the words forgiving. Um, I... Uh, and blown away by grace. Boy, do I believe in grace, Steve, <laughs> because I, I find it hard to forgive myself. And uh, that's probably linked to the shame question, the failure, fear, um, the com- competitive side of me that, um, you know, when I cross the right white line in sport, I seem to leave my Christianity on the other side. <laughs> I need to win. Uh, and I think the need to win is the failure, fear, um, so forgiving myself uh, is how I'd answer that. Oh, that's good. I know for a lot of preachers especially, and I think it's universal, we struggle with a gap between what we proclaim about God and what we experience from God ourselves. Would there be a gap in your faith too where you believe something that you struggle to experience? For me, it would actually be the love of God. I, I for, for too long I was very articulate at, proclaiming the love of God for others, but struggled to experience it for myself, for example. Um, what might it be for you, if, if any at all? Yeah, look, it's really that gap of forgiveness. Uh, I can see that God can forgive anyone. I worked with Urban Seed when I was a Baptist minister with drug addicts in St Kilda with sex workers. I had no difficulty believing God can forgive them and his grace was enough for them. But it was a gap for me, uh, believing it. And, uh, you know, I think the trick in life is managing expectations. If they're not high enough, you don't strive. If they're too high, they crush you. I think that gap between the expectations and what God expects of me has been uh, the thing I've continued to struggle with. Yeah. And then, Tim, we'll just shift. We've got two more questions here, but we'll shift to anxiety in groups, not just what's going on inside you, but what you've noticed between people. Give us an example of where you have seen people catch each other's anxiety in a group. Well, I've seen it uh, with some churches uh, here in Australia, and I'm sure you have even more of this in in the US where uh, uh, the anxiety was, but if we believe God protects us, we're not going to take the vaccine. And they've been out without masks saying Jesus is our vaccine, which strikes me as not a great evangelistic technique in a pandemic. And... uh, that anxiety that uh, our theology says we're protected uh, and therefore we've got to demonstrate to the world our faith uh, has been contagious. Uh, I personally uh, believe that uh, there's another life, that I believe in the resurrection. I've talked a lot about that. But where that can lead to what I would call foolishness uh, is a contagious anxiety by some of the church groups here. Yeah. And then finally, Tim, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Uh, It's with my family. I've got now two grandchildren. 
Grandkids are much more fun than kids. <laughs> That's what my in-laws tell me. <laughs> <laughs> they say that why do grandparents and grandkids get on so well? Because they've got a common enemy. And, uh, <laughs> That's great. And, and uh, these two little grandchildren, uh, two and a half, six months old, have um, flooded my life and my wife's life with love and the sense that... Um, we're not indispensable, but we'll be gone. And shaping them and the future and God's will goes on. Giving me perspective, allowing me to actually say, uh, I don't have to be the big bull in the ring still achieving and doing these kids. And I now need to mentor, shape, pray, love. That's, that's been an experience of boomeranging love back for me. Yeah. Tim, uh, Rich Stearns described you as just one of his most precious friends and uh, you've also been called one of Australia's national treasures. I'm going to add my testimony to that. Thank you so much for coming on the show and being willing to share a bit of your heart and also just your thoughts on what I think the church uh, has to get right this generation. We're, we're running out of time to, to make a difference. So thank you so much for coming on to the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. It's been an absolute delight. And, and go, go gold for Australia in the Olympics. Yeah, amen to that. Let's do that. <laughs> for more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.